Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, sports fans, don't skip ahead just yet. I got to tell you about the Shadow Docket bonus show on our Patreon page. As you may or may not know, the Bob Seska show is almost entirely fueled by our Patreon subscribers, and we couldn't do four plus shows a week without their generous financial support. If you dig what you hear today, please consider signing up for our Shadow Docket bonus show every Tuesday and Thursday for just $5 per month. It used to be called the Postmortem Show, but with the support of our existing subscribers, we changed the name to The Shadow Docket. Same show, same exclusive content, but an all-new name. Again, that's $5 per month at bobseskashow.com or patreon.com slash bobseskashow. And now let the cartoons begin. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. Today's Rachel Maddow Show Award for Headline Excellence goes to Bob Seska. The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, Rocktober 6, 2021, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, how you doing? My name is Bob. Hello, Bob. Hello, day 260 of the Biden-Harris administration, 399 days until the 22 midterms. Find me on Instagram at TheBobSeska and on Twitter at BobSeska underscore go. The great Aaron Rupar returns to the show today. At some point in the past several months, you probably retweeted one of his videos. He's been covering Trump and the Red Hat cult for Vox for as long as I can remember. But now he's starting his own thing over at Substack. It's called Public Notice, aaronrupar.substack.com. If you're going to subscribe to anything beyond my Patreon page, let Aaron's Substack be that thing. He's got an interview with the Washington Post's Brian Kloss up there right now that confirmed much of my pessimism about Trumpism. But Aaron has a more optimistic view, dare I say, a more Ted Lasso-style outlook on our national existential emergency. So stick around for the next hour. You're not going to regret it. Meantime, if you can, please help support this show by subscribing to our bonus content at bobseskashow.com. Okay, here comes me and Aaron Rupar. Well, how old is your daughter now? Oh, and now, and you know what? As soon as I, there's a t- tornado siren here. One sec. Uh, <laughs> Shit. Jeez, Louise. Uh, wow. It's the first Wednesday. It's the first Wednesday of the month here. So in Minnesota, they do the emergency testing. Oh, right. Yeah. You know what? When I lived in Hawaii, it was the first Wednesday of the month for tsunami testing. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of kind of same thing here with Fun. tornadoes. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Mia is 16 months. So yeah. what, what's it like uh, raising a young daughter during all of this? I mean, especially during the, the pandemic. Have you and your wife been 
super duper protective about uh, keeping it away from her? Yeah, we have been. I mean, we have a nanny. So we were going to do daycare, you know, we were, and I was pretty excited about that. Um, she was all set to go in September. And then with the Delta wave, we decided to put that off and, you know, we'll reassess come wintertime. But the other thing with trying to start her wintertime daycare here is that just getting her to daycare, you know, January when it's icy and snowy can be kind of tough. So yeah. I'm guessing at this point, it'll probably be, be like next spring until we get her out of the house more. But mm-hmm. You know, we bring her down to the park and she almost every day will play with other little kids and gets along with them really good and is really social. So, yeah, um, I think she's fine. But, yeah, I mean, it's been a little bit different just because a lot of the normal socializing um, we haven't done just because we want to try and keep her safe from getting sick and stuff. So, yeah. Is she okay wearing a, a mask? Is she okay doing no, that? No, we haven't. I mean, she's too young. Yeah. You know, with because she's not really, you know, at, at 16 months, she's not even really talking yet. I mean, she does a lot of like, you know, um, she can <laughs> communicate, but she doesn't really have words yet, you know? And so I haven't ever really seen babies of at, at her, I guess maybe not babies, but toddlers at her age wearing masks around. I think, I don't think they would tolerate it. Well, all I have to say, Aaron is more videos of Mia on Twitter, please. <laughs> oh my God. Especially last year. I mean, right after she was first born, my God, what a great uh, little diversion uh, to pop up in my Twitter feed. I think I speak oh, for God. everyone when I say, yeah. yeah, I mean, as a counterpoint to all of the Trump rally videos that you were posting before that, it was uh, really wonderful to see her growing up. She is oh, so incredibly you. adorable. I appreciate that. I, I get that from a lot of people, which yeah. I really appreciate because, um, you know, I never really planned to post so much baby content, but it just, yeah, I guess at that particular time during kind of the throes of the pandemic, oh, yeah. it resonated with a lot of people and that makes me feel really good. So yeah, mm-hmm. there'll definitely be plenty more, I'm sure. And when you see stories uh, like this school shooting today in Arlington, Texas, and uh, all the screeching about mask mandates in schools, not to mention uh, Roe v. Wade on the endangered species list, does it take on a whole new dimension now that you have a daughter? Yeah, a little bit. Um, she's still so young that school still kind of feels like it's a long ways off. But yeah, right, um, right. as we're kind of thinking about where we want to be long term, I mean, certainly you start thinking more as anyone would, even if there wasn't a pandemic, just kind of mm-hmm. the normal mode of like school districts and safety and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and of course, you always wonder just in general about the sort of world that your kids will inherit and you hope that it's better in some ways than the one that you lived in when you were her age. And um, obviously that's kind of in question these days. So that's unfortunate, but you know, I'm, I feel pretty fortunate that we have, you know, enough resources to give her a good upbringing and, Mm -hmm. and we have a lot of family around these days too. So that, that makes a lot better, but yeah, some of those things, I mean, when, you know, she's still so young that until um, I think it'll be more, more of a pressing issue when I'm, you know, when we're having conversations and kind of I'm teaching her about things and talking to Mm -hmm. her more because these days I'm just concerned with like chasing her around a park and making sure she doesn't, you know, dive into the lake or something like that, you know? So it's, it's still pretty basic stuff around here. Sure. Sure. But I mean, more specifically in terms of just your perception, some story comes down involving a school involving some sort of uh, crazy group of crackpots entering into a school board meeting or something like that, or going after school officials or just any of these stories that really pertain to the future of this country, even down on the climate crisis, it's got to alter the way you personally perceive and, and to uh, a certain extent, your wife as well, how you guys individually perceive these stories when they happen. It's got to be vastly different than prior to your daughter being born. I, you know, I, 
I kind of don't feel like that's really true. I mean, I think I've mm. always been kind of mindful of, of, you know, just, you know, even when we were talking about trying to, if we were going to have kids and stuff like that, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you have those conversations and um, I don't know, I guess maybe I'm a little bit jaded just in that. I don't know if you've read the phenomenal um, Nixon land. It was uh, Rick Perlstein. He wrote Nixon land and then he wrote the, uh, the invisible bridge. But anyway, he wrote oh, a bunch yeah. of books about kind of the, the, you know, the seventies and Nixon and into the Ford administration. And, and one of the things that I, that really stuck with me from those books is how, even in the seventies, I mean, there was a lot of doom and gloom about overpopulation and resource scarcity and things like, you know, and, and a mm -hmm. lot of the same arguments that you hear now, um, slight variations of them were being made by people in my position, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And so I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, I am concerned about just kind of the future and how, you know, just what this world will look like in 50, 100 years. But there's also kind of a part of me that maybe is less rational where I just sort of have faith that, you know, that Mia will still have um, a pleasant life and, you know, mm -hmm. we'll still, there will still be a lot of good things happening in the world, you know, when she's older, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's something that if I, you know, really kind of rack my brains to kind of think through everything that I, I wouldn't, there, there wouldn't be the basis for that sort of optimism, but yeah, I do still have kind of like a basic faith that, you know, it's worth having a child and, you know, worth kind of, um, you know, it's worth the sacrifices for someone. I, I, you know, I'd rather her be alive than not alive sort of thing. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I almost uh, want to call you Ted Lasso. That's an incredible <laughs> yeah. amount of uh, hope and optimism, Aaron. I mean, have you even recovered from watching and covering so many Trump rallies? I mean, up close every damn day for a period of time there? I think so. I mean, I don't feel like I'm super scarred by it. I mean, I'm actually thinking right now, now that I'm doing this, um, this, you know, solo project that I'm doing now that, you know, Trump has a rally coming up on Saturday. Mm-hmm that I'm planning to watch and I'll probably write something about that. And, um, you know, that was one of the things, and I definitely, um, you know, I think at a certain point there's been so much saturation coverage of, of Trump that, you know, you watch these rallies and it's not like he's saying a lot of new stuff. And so it does kind of become challenging to, to find like a new frame. Although obviously the circumstances are always changing. And now there's questions about if he's going to run again in 2024 or what his campaigning is going to look like next year, that sort of stuff. But um, I never really got too overly traumatized by them because I was able to kind of compartmentalize a little bit that they're news events and that mm -hmm. it was my job, you know, to watch them. And so, um, you know, I might've had a different sort of reaction had I actually been there in the flesh more than I was. I mean, there's still a certain degree of separation, you know, even though I'm watching all of them being on your computer or watching them on TV instead of actually being there. So, yeah. you know, you might want to, to talk to someone who's really scarred. I mean, you know, <laughs> like a Jim Acosta or someone like that who's been on the road for a lot of those and had to kind of mix it up with Trump supporters. I never really had to do that. But mm. um, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, certainly when you kind of immerse yourself in them, I think it kind of brought home the realities of Trumpism for me in a way that I think a lot of journalists, if you were just sort of, you know, catching up to headlines from them or seeing tweets here and there, you know, maybe you didn't really understand to the same degree that I did what Trumpism, what Trumpism was really all about and sort of the, mm -hmm. the hatred at the core of it and the anger at the core of it. And, um, you know, so I, I do think that that was part of the, the reason that people kind of gravitated towards a lot of the stuff that I would tweet about Trump or write about Trump is because I could convey that in a way that, you know, people who weren't as immersed in it as I have been, um, could, could do so. Um, you know, but yeah, that, that is, you know, even this Saturday, I'm looking forward here to, to watching another one, but looking forward to it in the sense that it's something I wow. know I will be doing rather than like, this is something I'm going to enjoy watching. If that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Just the whole idea of looking forward to a Trump rally, man, that is, 
I, whatever you're having, give me some. If you're like, again, I'm not looking forward to in the sense that this is going to be a lot of fun, but you know, I do kind of on those evenings when I'm going to be watching them kind of, you sort of prep for a couple hours beforehand, you know, take a little walk outside and, yeah. you know, make sure that you can kind of focus in for the 90 minutes to two hours that it's going to take. But, um, you know, now we're kind of entering obviously the, the midterm cycle. And so I'm really curious to see, you know, obviously he's going to be the, the leader of the party. He's mm. going to be kind of a kingmaker in terms of who he endorses in these Republican primaries are going to have a huge leg up over the non-Trump endorsed candidates. And so, you know, I think it's a really big cycle. If he's thinking of running again in 2024, um, you know, Republicans really have to have a stronger showing uh, than they had like in 2018, for instance, um, if it's going to make sense for him to use that as kind of a springboard towards a 2024 run. So, you know, as the next election cycle kind of draws closer, um, I'm curious to see what his speeches, you know, what form they take. I mean, obviously, he really only delivers one speech, but um, <laughs> You know, if it's just kind of railing against the Republicans who voted for impeachment and stuff mm -hmm. like that, or, um, you know, if there is a slightly different um, set of talking points that he uses to be a little more forward looking, um, I'm guessing it'll be more of the same. But, um, you know, this is still a guy who is the most powerful, powerful figure in one of the two major parties that controls 50 seats in the Senate. So, mm -hmm. yep. um, you know, I think there are news events. Um, you don't want to kind of fall into the trap of just doing stenography for him or promoting, you know, his hateful comments, things like that. But, you know, I, I try to kind of approach them with, with a critical eye and with kind of an eye for news. And so, oh, sure. um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it in the sense that it's a news event, not that it's like party time. Let's get the friends together and watch Trump on Saturday. Yeah. I've been noticing some increased conversation about the fact that one reason Trump might not run in 2024 is because of his health. Have you been noticing in his rallies anything specific that would indicate to you some kind of physical decline uh, over the past few years? Or Yeah, my, my, my read on that is it's more speculative. Yeah. I haven't seen anything that was any different from what we were seeing during mm -hmm. the 2020 campaign. I mean, I think if anything, I think he probably looks a little bit better just because I think you know, he's getting a lot of sun playing even more golf than he was when he was in the White House. And, you know, for a guy of his age, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I don't see any indication that he's having health troubles or anything like that. So, you know, I kind of feel like liberals have been waiting for Trump's health to save them now for five or six years, you know, and, um, you know, I just kind of am assuming that, you know, I'll be on my deathbed someday and Trump will still be, you know, on OAN or something when he's 120 years old. So I know what you mean. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, we made fun of Ronnie Jackson back in the day when he had that news conference and said Trump would have, you know, he could have lived to be 200 had he just cut out the cheeseburgers. But, um, yeah, yeah. you know, as ridiculous as that is, um, he does seem to be kind of indestructible. So mm -hmm. I just assume that if he wants to, he'll run again. And all indications are that he wants to, and that if he decides to do so, he would clear the field. So um, that's why I think the one thing that could maybe, you know, change his plans is if the midterm cycle ended up being really bad for Republicans. But, you know, as Biden has kind of had some troubles this fall, I think um, that's less and less likely. And I think it's quite likely that Republicans end up at least taking control of the House. And then you can sort of understand how Trump would use that as a launch pad to claim that, you know, he had all the Republicans had all this success because of him. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, he could kind of parlay that into his 2024 announcement. But watching his rallies, I certainly have not noticed any physical changes um, in terms of the speeches themselves. Um, it's more of the same. A lot of railing against rhino Republicans, uh, you know, who voted for impeachment, who have crossed him in some way, shape or form and a lot of attacks on Biden. So, you yeah. know, th that to me is almost more, you know, when you watch these speeches, it's so 
the material has not really been changed, you know, in years. And um, that's one of the things that I've tweeted about a little bit watching his recent rallies is that it's like some of the comments he's making about um, Space Force or, um, you know, catch and release these, you know, it's the same talking points he's been using for two, three, four, five, six years. Oh, you know? yeah. So um, it, it's, you know, if anything, it's more, um, you know, it's just the repetition that becomes challenging to cover more than anything else. But um, certainly, I mean, you know, I don't sense that there's going to be any sort of, um, you know, health health reason from to bow out. But things, you know, when you're that age, things can obviously change. So who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I watched your uh, video post of Ted Cruz talking in uh, really somber tones about this school shooting in Arlington, Texas. And and by the way, we're recording this show right now. I have no details whatsoever in terms of what has happened down there, how many casualties there are in that situation. I have no sense of what's happening. But I wonder if on some level, deep down, Ted Cruz realizes that it's the proliferation of firearms in this country that's directly contributing to these massacres. I wonder if that ever pops into his head. And because he's such, you know, the, the consummate bullshitter that he just, ah, I guess going to ignore that and make sure I keep uh, targeting the usual suspects on this. What do you think? What do you think yeah. of uh, his kind of bullshit somber tone? Well, yeah. And if people haven't seen this video, it's, it's on my Twitter account. Yeah. Um, it, it, and actually it wasn't even an event that I was intentionally watching. I just had it on MSNBC and they kind of um, played a clip of Ted Cruz at this news conference, which was with a bunch of Republican senators attacking Biden over the crisis at the Southern border, as they put it. Um, and obviously there is a real you know crisis there, but, yeah. but obviously it's a lot of performative, um, you know, it's very performative on behalf of these Republicans kind of acting like it's the number one problem that the country needs to deal with or the, uh, the Biden administration needs to deal with. Yeah, yeah. And so basically Ted Cruz, um, after offering thoughts and prayers over this school shooting, immediately pivoted to saying the reason we are here today is the Biden border crisis. And, you know, it was one of the most uncomfortable transitions because, you know, obviously people are, you know, as you, as you said, Bob, trying to get information about what's going, you know, what happened with the shooting and, yeah. Um, you know, and so for for, you know, for Senator Cruz to kind of use that as a opportunity to attack Biden just seemed very crass. But um, mm. I'm sure that he is smart enough to realize, um, you know, what's really going on here. But um, I don't know. I mean, I boy, you could probably write books trying to psychoanalyze these Republicans who have gone, um, you know, further, further down the, you know, who, who continue to kind of um, at every turn, you know, um, kind of be like a, a parody of themselves almost at this point where, yeah. um, you know, it's not, it's not even at this point enough just to do the thoughts and prayers thing. You, you also have to use that as an opportunity to kind of uh, take cheap shots at the president at the same time, you know? So um, none of this really should surprise anyone at no. this point. That doesn't mean that it's not notable um, that you shouldn't try and hold these Republicans accountable when um, you know, they're obviously very disengaged from actual issues that are life and death matters to their constituents and instead seem to prioritize kind of performative politics above everything else. But I mean, you know, Ted Cruz is a very highly educated person. Um, I've seen him speak publicly enough to know that, you know, he's an intelligent and well-read guy. And so um, I'm sure he knows better, but um, you know, I'm sure he knows better could be the, uh, you know, the title of a book about the Republican party for the last decade, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, Ted Cruz being a constant fountain, a geyser of horseshit 24 seven, 
On the opposite end of that is Kirsten Cinema, who doesn't say a goddamn thing, but continues to be immensely annoying without saying anything. I mean, it's an amazing thing to look at and also confounding. I mean, what's your take on Kirsten Cinema? What does she want? Because <laughs> she's not telling anyone what she yeah, wants. I wish, I wish I knew what she wanted. And yeah. I think that's the frustration that I feel is that, um, and you can kind of paint. Joe Manchin with this brush mm -hmm. too, to an extent, but with Manchin, you at least know that with the reconciliation bill on some of the climate provisions as wrongheaded as he may be about them and opposing, you know, huge investments in climate related policies and programs, at least that makes sense given his state of West Virginia and sort of the, the role that coal plays, um, you know, coal mining among his constituents. I mean, at least it mm -hmm. makes sense uh, yeah. with cinema. It's just not even clear you know, what she's after, um, what she stands for besides sort of perform performative bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I wish I had some sort of unique insight into what's going <laughs> on there. But, you know, I think really the, the thing that we're seeing is that um, I think a lot of people when the two special elections, elections in Georgia went Democrats' way, um, you know, sort of uh, did cartwheels because, you know, Democrats had 50 seats. They had the the tiebreaker with the vice president. And so it really seemed like, um, you know, the sky was a limit in terms of, you know, getting Biden's agenda through Congress. And what we're seeing now, what we've been seeing for the last couple of months is that really, you know, we needed a couple more seats uh, to really get stuff done. And, and Manchin shouldn't be surprising with a lot of this stuff, but I think cinema has been mm -hmm. disappointing just because I think people assumed that she would, you um, Kind of get you know get with the program a little bit more so to speak uh along yeah. with the other senate democrats so you know it's very very frustrating i mean my sense and, and i will confess that you know some of the the ins and outs of the process the last couple of weeks i have not followed as closely as i otherwise would have been following just with rolling out you know my new site and prepping content for that but um you know my sense is that they'll, they'll end up getting some sort of reconciliation bill done um, obviously watered down below the 3.5 trillion that, mm -hmm. you know, that, that Biden was seeking and that, you know, in terms of Joe securing Joe Manchin's vote, I'm not surprised in the least about that, but the fact that cinema has kind of raised these very mysterious and, um, kind of ambiguous objections to, to a larger reconciliation, reconciliation bill is extremely frustrating, especially in light of the fact that she has not been communicative yeah. about what it is that she's trying to accomplish. They're both equally as frustrating. It's just that Joe Manchin says out loud what he's looking for. And we hear that just about every day. There's always a new headline every day. Joe Manchin demands this. And so we know, and then we see him talking into microphones and saying those things. Whereas Kirsten Cinema just, uh, that's one of the reasons why I think she was confronted in the bathroom, which I personally didn't care for a whole lot because I don't, I don't like this confrontational form of politics. It's like uh, politics is blood sport now. It's, it's getting a little bit scary. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's a result of her not talking to anybody. And I think that's starting to really, really damage her. And so she's going to have a hard time, I think, in 24 uh, when she runs for re-election. I, I wonder if she's even going to yeah. make it through the primary. It's, yeah, uh, it's, no, I'm with you on that. And, you know, even the fact that she was in Arizona to begin with at this yeah. time when there's really high stakes negotiating happening and there's a sense of urgency and she you know, travels back to Arizona and is at a fundraiser. And, you know, so the optics are bad kind of on every level. And I'm with yeah. you on the, you know, following her into a bathroom. I mean, I certainly think um, you know, I, I think that's the, a wrong thing to do and that shouldn't happen. And so, um, you know, but, but you are also right, Bob, in, in sort of, you know, tracing that back to a deeper frustration that she isn't talking, you know, she's not engaging with her constituents and yeah. 
not only that, but she's, you know, she's just not really publicly engaging at all. And so people are kind of left guessing about what's going on. And so I think it's really easy to sort of draw the conclusion that what she's really after is, you know, kind of staking out this, um, this posture as sort of a, you know, this bipartisan posture and this sort of bipartisan, bipartisan, uh, you know, performative bipartisanship without Mm. any real substance kind of underpinning that. And so, you know, that's kind of the epitome of being somewhat phony, right? So um, at least with Manchin, again, you know, I, I think you can trace back a lot of his objections to the larger reconciliation bill to just the fact that Trump is extremely popular in his state and won by like 30 points. And, you know, the fact that there's even a Democratic senator from West Virginia is a minor miracle in its own right. And so that for him leads to kind of weird policy positions in the context of the broader Democratic Party. And it leads to, you know, him, um, you know, needing to sort of pander to Republicans, you know, of Republicans who make up, you know, his constituency and people sure. who vote for him in West Virginia in a way that for cinema, she doesn't have to do that. So, I, you know, I, I think that that for me is the difference between the two. One of the reasons why I think that bathroom thing bothered me, I talked about this on my uh, Tuesday show this week, is that uh, I get concerned as someone who does this for a living, who has, you know, some sort of modest visibility on especially social media. That what I don't want is like red hats suddenly showing up at my door with like Pepe the Frog memes or something like that. You know what I mean? Once once oh, yeah. you break through that barrier and you start confronting your political enemies personally and accosting them kind of where they live in many cases, uh, whether it's in a restaurant or a bathroom or even at their front door. I worry that the blowback from that is going to hit those of us who have that recognition personally. You know, I, I'm sure you don't you don't want people showing up at your front door, uh, especially yeah. with a daughter. I mean, my God, so that that's yeah. what concerns me about. It. I understand the need to protest, and and that's not what I'm arguing against. I'm just arguing against this confrontational, beat them over the head kind of protest that takes place and we've seen that for the last five years or so people in restaurants and so on i mean i'll admit i worry from a personal point of view from a selfish point of view i don't want the same thing happening to me and you know if you open up that pandora's box eventually it's going to happen politics as blood sport these days are you ever concerned for your own safety the safety of your family given your visibility yeah, no, a- absolutely. I mean, I-, I think it matters what you stand for a little bit, too, because yeah. um, I remember the former uh, Homeland Security chief under Trump, uh, Kirsten Nielsen, if you remember her, she's kind of, you know, it's like oh, a yeah. character that went away many seasons ago. And we haven't heard from her since. But um, <laughs> seasons, yeah. If, if you remember, she, you know, there was a clip of her in a Georgetown restaurant being accosted and mm-hmm. she ended up having to leave. I believe I'm remembering this correctly. And you know, part of the deal there was that she was one of the, you know, what part of her job was to get on TV at news conferences and defend family separation, you know, and then she yeah. tried to go out to eat with her family and couldn't do it. And so, you know, it's in a situation like that, I think it's a little bit harder to feel sympathy. I mean, certainly oh, yeah. she shouldn't be harmed in any way, or, you know, people shouldn't, um, you know, pour food on her, spill a drink on her, that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I think that there is, I can certainly understand people if she's in a public place um, making her uncomfortable, wanting her to leave, that sort of thing in a way where, you know, if you stand for egalitarian causes and tolerance and inclusion and, and things like that, um, that makes me a little more squeamish if I seem and not that cinema, you know, cinema has by and large is on the, the right side of the issues. I mean, obviously, when you get into this reconciliation stuff, it gets a little bit wonky and sort of arcane. So, you know, it's not mm-hmm. like being 
it's not like her opposition to a larger uh, a larger reconciliation bill is tantamount to supporting uh, the family separation policy or something like that. So, I mean, my, my point is just that there, there are differences there. But yeah, I mean, myself personally, I mean, I, I had a guy who um, on Instagram last year doxed me and my family and like posted all of our addresses just based on a property record search. Oh, and, God you know, and it was obviously doing so from like kind of a place of malice, like yeah, yeah. and was just, you know, nine times out of 10, if not even, you know, 99, 10, 99 times out of 100, when people do stuff like that, it's just to kind of get a rise out of you or, you know, it's not that they're necessarily plotting any harm, but yeah. um, it's very easy to look up someone's property records and post that information online sort of thing. And so, you know, I think anybody who, who, especially when you're dealing with politics and it's so polarized and, you know, people are so worked up on, you know, either, you know, it's so polarized, so people are worked up on one or the other side of it, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, that can lead to, you know, if you're a public figure covering politics to, um, you know, kind of feeling um, a little more besieged than if I was a public figure talking about baseball or something, you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. especially covering politics, I feel that, but I take comfort in the fact that I try to, you know, stand for good things, at least in my mind, which is, you know, mm-hmm. again, egalitarian causes, you know, equality of opportunity, tolerance that sort of stuff. And so um, I think I would have a harder time just having kind of a moral foundation that I do have, you know, if I stood for, you know, if, if I was running interference for Trump, um, for instance, yeah, um, I think I would have a harder time living with myself. And um, so I think those, those things to me do matter, but, but I totally agree with you that, you know, following Kristen cinema into a, into a bathroom and a costume or in the bathroom. I mean, that, that definitely crosses a line that I think um, people should respect. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that made me uncomfortable as well. Okay, we're going to pause right here, take a short break, and we'll be back with more Aaron Rupar right after these words. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Bob Seska Show. And, you know, turning back to uh, idiocracy here for a second, the uh, the rise of fascist idiocracy here with Trump and, and, and the MAGA movement and all of that, you know, I noticed on your uh, Twitter feed, in fact, you posted a screen grab from Fox News about the national homicide rate in 2020. I wonder what the percentage is of Fox News viewers who blame the 2020 crime rate on Joe Biden. It seems like that's what Fox News is trying to say, that it's... (laughs) That it's all yeah. Joe Biden's fault that there was a spike in the crime rate last year. Yeah, I wonder if that works. I wonder if people are going, yeah, fuck Joe Biden. Why did he do that? But yeah. So the, the context here, if people hadn't seen it, is, yeah, Fox did a brief segment today with a graphic that says national homicide rate up 30 yeah. percent 2020 versus 2019. <laughs> and of course, you know, so, yeah, of course, Trump was president in 2020. Right. Uh, but the narrative is that, you know, uh, homicides, violent crime has gotten really out of control this year under Biden. Mm. Now, in fairness, um, if, if you watch the the segment in question here, uh, this Fox segment, they did not mention Biden or Trump at all. It was just kind of meant to be sort of a standalone bit about crime. They weren't trying to, in this particular segment, blame a politician, blame Biden, anything like that. But, you know, it does kind of get to, um, you know, some of the absurdity of, you know, Fox in particular is so all in on 
portraying Biden's America to be this kind of complete disaster, whether it's, you know, very minuscule inflation being portrayed as like this, the biggest economic crisis since the Great Depression, (laughs) or, you know, the fact that obviously the border has been an issue for 30, 40 years at this point. And yet, you know, we get breathless coverage as if this is a brand new thing that is only happening because we have a Democratic president at this point. And crime is kind of, you know, in with this too, where, you know, anytime you look at a year to year, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to draw conclusions from year to year fluctuations in crime stats, it's probably going to lead you astray. Um, you know, the, the way that experts in this area advise people to kind of process information is to look at long trend lines, look at in the past 10, 20 years, that sort of thing. And obviously there has been an increase in crime since the COVID pandemic, since George Floyd. Um, you know, those are real things that happened, mm-hmm. but a lot of it happened while, while Donald Trump was still president, first yeah. of all. Yeah. And secondly, um, you know, I think we need to kind of give it a little bit more time before we, um, you know, sort of draw conclusions about this being a huge trend or, you know, a, a resurgent problem in America. I think there were a right. lot of unique circumstances last year that hopefully, you know, as we come out of this pandemic, um, things will revert a little bit more back to normal. But um, mm. yeah, I mean, this was we've seen a few. I'm trying to remember there was a Republican uh, conservative pundit who posted something very similar. Oh, it was Kaylee, Kaylee McEnany. I don't know if you remember that a couple of weeks ago where she posted oh, yeah. a tweet, um, you know, bashing Joe Biden for the increase in violent crime in 2020. You know, it's completely oblivious. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it is. I mean, that is really an interesting one to me, too, Bob, because it's like, you know, the, the the fact that Donald Trump was president last year doesn't seem I don't think we need to like do a, you know, have like a, a special investigation to figure this out <laughs> or that, you know, I, I don't think this is like a it's not like trying to split an atom, you know, remembering who yeah. the president was last year. And yet uh, this has happened enough times now where it's kind of like, what is going on here? I mean, is it just kind of just complete shamelessness with lying or is there, you know, some sort of like, um willful ignorance, you know, or like intentional forgetting, um, because it really is, uh, it's just very bizarre that anyone would ever get that wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what? I remember a 2013 poll. I think it was talking points memo did this poll or commissioned a poll showed 29% of Louisiana Republicans blamed Barack Obama for the government response to hurricane Katrina. I'm not making that up. That was a real poll, real results. So with this one, with the Fox News thing and the, the homicide rate in 2020, I'm going to go with like 30 to 50 percent of Fox News viewers believe that it's Joe yeah. Biden's fault that there was a spike in the crime rate last well, year. I'm just going to generally I, do that because of negative yeah. partisanship. Well, related to this, too, and I, I was thinking about this today. I, I don't know if you followed because I might write about this actually for my newsletter on Friday. If, if you followed at all this kind of very fake and ridiculous controversy over Dr. Fauci's comments regarding gatherings for Christmas this year. Have oh, you yeah, yeah. War on Christmas is what that is yes. now, right? And, and, you know, and again, Fox has been the absolute worst offender where they had a graphic during one of their news shows yesterday that had a Fauci and kind of like a Grinch. Uh, it was like a Fauci kind of photoshopped into like a Grinch situation. And it said something to the effect of like Fauci uncancels Christmas. You know, which, you know, so the, the subtext kind of being that at one point he canceled it, you know, but, but if you actually watch the news clip from Face the Nation on which all of this is based, it's mm. the most normal news clip. I mean, you know, oh, Fauci was asked something. Yeah, I mean, he was asked something to the effect of, you know, will it be safe for people to get together in gatherings indoors with their families this Christmas? And he basically said it's too early to tell for sure. 
Um, you know, we'll have to see how, you know, it, it just kind of normal comments, because obviously we, we've all lived through this long enough now with this pandemic to know mm-hmm. that there can be different variants, there can be spikes in cases, regional differences, you know, all of the, and that doesn't mean that he's saying that, you know, you're prohibited from getting together with your family. It's just guidance as to what the safe thing to do would be. And we're yeah. a few months out. And somehow the fact that that got spun, you know, on Fox and elsewhere, Newsmax was really bad with this too, into like this two to three day story about, um, you know, kind of like Fauci being, you know, this tyrant that was canceling the holidays for your family is just, you know, people have to know better than that. But, um, you know, again, it's like kind of this, um, it's almost like this confirmation bias where if you're already thinking that Dr. Fauci is this tyrant and, you know, somehow, um, you know, as part of this, like, you know, effort to kind of take total control over your families and stuff like that, then, you know, maybe you would, you'd hear a very normal comment like that and somehow kind of leap to these wild conclusions in your head. But, um, you know, I guess the ultimate thing is, it's just so hard to kind of engage with people on that, you know, who are sort of in that uh, mode of thinking and yet, you know, to kind of get anything accomplished in terms of, you know, the US Congress, um, you know, it's like you have to sort of find some sort of middle ground with these people. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's very challenging to do that, obviously. And oh my God, Aaron, I just looked it up. 72% of Republicans believe that Christmas is under attack. This is a YouGov poll from uh, December 10, 2020. So a little uh, bit less than a year ago. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That's, see, now what they're doing is they know. I think Fox News knows that they're marketing to this mindset that, yeah, Christmas is under attack. Because as you were talking, I was thinking, do they really believe that there's a war on Christmas or are they just saying that to be part of the team or something like that? I mean, what's what's the deal? And yeah, it looks yeah. like they do. They do believe that there's a war on Christmas, these people. Well, yeah, Good I mean, God. Trump still talks about this. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think his most recent rally, he had a riff about how people are saying Merry Christmas again, sort of, you know, and it is just, <laughs> yeah. people are kind of living in the real world. It's just, it's so ridiculous, you know, but but there's a sizable, you know, it's, it's a significant percentage of the population that, that's the way that they think. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, this isn't exactly breaking news, but um, it's just challenging, you know, and I'm sure you experience this too, when you're kind of in a job where you're trying to explain things that are going on for people to have some insights, you know, um, you, you'd like to believe that if you could reach people rationally and kind of explain things to them that, you know, that we could all kind of agree on sort of a shared basis of facts or, you know, kind of modes of logic where we can draw mm-hmm. the same conclusions. But um we're just kind of, you know, it is really sort of a deal where it's like two very different worlds. One where the rules are kind of like rationality and reason and logic and another where it's just kind of like wild throwing stuff against the wall and whatever feels good is right, you know. And yeah. um, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I certainly have never perceived any sort of war on Christmas or effort, you know, effort to, um, you know, erase kind of tr- the traditional celebration of Christmas. But yeah, I mean, it was it's kind of been underpinning, you know, it's something that Trump has talked about for five, six years now, oh, yeah, still yeah. talking about it. Yeah. I, and, you know, again, and Dr. Fauci kind of makes a very anodyne comment on, on national TV. And, you know, I actually was watching, um, I was watching that interview live as, as it happened. And I did kind of, you know, I, I remember kind of thinking to myself with like a chuckle in my head, kind of like, <laughs> Oh, yep, that'll be, that'll be on Fox news tomorrow. And, and then I was kind of kicking myself for not posting that video because sure enough, um, Sure enough, it was. It became like a whole week long thing on Fox. Oh, yeah. and, you know, with with everything else going on in the world, it's just it's amazing that that can be something that people are kind of you know ex- people are actually investing uh, you know thought and kind of effort into into that. It's just remarkable to me. Oh yeah, yeah. And in fact, last month you posted a, a clip of Donald Trump claiming that the Arizona audit 
showed that Joe Biden lost Arizona, which is completely yeah. opposite of what that audit, the uh, Cyber Ninjas audit showed. I mean, the results were that Joe Biden gained uh, something like 360 votes and, and, and that was it. But I get the sense that some red hats in the back of their little teeny tiny walnut brains, they know it's untrue, but they lie to themselves about it in order to, as I said a second ago, in order to support the team. They got to support the team, so they got to say this bullshit, even though you know, I think some of them really believe in the back of their head that what they're saying and what they're believing is untrue. But it's all about making sure that uh, they win the debate, because winning for them is everything. And so they don't care if they use bullshit to get to that victory. Do you think that may be the motivation? I th- yeah, I, th- I think there might be something to that. I mean, I-, I think also a lot of these claims that people in Trump world are making about election fraud are so kind of vague in general now that they're almost unfalsifiable. Yeah. You know, if you really want to insist that, look, I believe that these voting machines changed votes. Um, you know, someone voted for Trump and then was switched to Biden. I mean, there, there's a certain point at which that you could kind of keep, you know, just insisting that, no, I just believe it, you know, that, sure, they released an audit, this and that. I don't believe it. You know, I still think it's, you know, look at the size of this rally that I'm at. There's no way Biden won kind of thing. And so I just think people can be kind of selective, you know, and there is kind of a thing with motivated reasoning. And, um, and I think you're kind of touching upon that, too, where, yeah. um, you know, people just lie to themselves so much that they end up believing them. Um, You know, I think with Trump, there's sort of a cult dynamic at play too, where, Mm. you know, whatever he says, his followers will be, will believe, and they'll kind of construct, you know, they'll they'll construct their beliefs around a claim that Trump makes to, to make it plausible kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I mean, I I think you could be onto something there, but yeah, that was the moment to me from that last rally that really kind of stood out because I think it happened like the day after the results of that Arizona audit were released. Oh yeah. And the fact that he just, you know, completely with, you know, just a bold faced lie about about what the audit said, um, you know, that was even more kind of full frontal than I was expecting, where you think maybe he would ignore it or maybe he would, um, you know, seize upon, you know, some anecdote about fraud occurring as something that the audit didn't look into or something like that. But instead, he just totally turned reality on its head and said, nope, the audit actually said that I won. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a snapshot and kind of a revealing moment of as to what's going on yeah. with Trumpism at this point and just how over the top some of the lying is. And again, that's not a new thing, but I think, you know, it, it's also kind of a thing that I'm that I'm fascinated by as a journalist is that, you know, there's been so much myopic coverage for weeks now about Democratic divisions and d- Dems in disarray and oh, yeah. cinema and mansion and Meanwhile, Republicans, you know, they cannot defend um, their policy stance on this. I mean, you know, John Barrasso was on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace over the weekend. And Wallace asked him to defend the fact that, you know, there's like, you know, that that universal pre-K in Wyoming is very popular and would benefit his constituents. And how can he possibly defend not supporting it? And he really didn't even try to have a response to that other than I think what Biden is doing is bad for Wyoming and therefore I'm against the reconciliation bill, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, it's just amazing to me that we, to, that we have kind of half of our uh, you know, half of our politics is just completely beyond the realm of accountability or even trying to have good reasons for the things that they say that they believe in. And meanwhile, on the other side, it's like um, you know, it's like we have, reporters ascribe all of this agency to Democrats and Republicans are kind of the, these passive vessels to which, things just happen and they have yeah. no agency sort of thing. So, you know, that to me is always kind of a, a pretty interesting difference in how we cover politics and talk about politics. But, um, you know, I, I think with Trump, I mean, it's just, it's just so over the top um, that it's, it's still kind of hard for me to believe that he is 
as we head into these next couple election cycles, still the the head of this party. But, you know, if you thought that we were kind of turning the page from Trumpism when Biden was inaugurated, I think this year kind of disabuse all of that all of us of that assumption yeah unfortunately yeah that's where i am right now like ah shit you know it was kind of like after he got vaccinated after i got vaccinated i was like oh we're we're done okay and after about a month of that it was like oh i guess we're not done ah shit <laughs> delta variant yeah, that was, yeah. 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 it's the same it's the same with donald yeah. trump it's like ah we're yeah. done oh wait a minute no we're not done ah, crap. Uh, yeah and that's been i mean unfortunately you know yeah 20 2021 there yeah april may it seemed like things were really kind of headed in a in a good direction <laughs> yeah, and yeah. um it's been you know a little dice a little dice here here heading into the fall so um it's it's not the greatest omen you know as we head into to a midterm cycle here so what drew you to substack what uh, made you decide to start up the newsletter yeah, it was kind of a few different things. I mean, for one, being my own boss is kind of a dream. Um, you know, I've yeah. done so many different things in journalism. I've, you know, had editor as a title. I've been a reporter. I've been more of a columnist and all the social media stuff. And so, you know, to me, and then also having the large following that I have, it just seemed like a newsletter made kind of a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, Substack offered me an advance to do it. And so they're kind of um, easing the transition into going solo by paying me a bit up front, um, you know, because obviously it takes a little bit of time to build up an audience and to build up a subscriber base and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I think Vox is kind of moving toward more of a sort of long form magazine style of coverage as kind mm-hmm. of their bread and butter. And they're moving away from kind of like day to day news and covering the ins and outs of politics. And so it just kind of felt like time for me to, if I wanted to keep covering the stuff that I've been covering sort of right-wing media and disinformation and Trumpism and and those sorts of things, which I think obviously, sadly, will still be very uh, newsworthy topics over the next two to three, four, you know, who knows how many years. Yeah. yeah. Um, It just kind of felt like if I wanted to keep doing that, um, it was time to move on. And that combined with just the possibility of kind of only really being accountable to my readers and to myself and being able to cover whatever I want to cover um, without having to, to kind of worry about how it fits into someone else's editorial vision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just all of those things made a lot of sense. And so, uh, yeah, you know, it was a, a really good three years at Vox and um, you know, I continue to, to read almost everything they put in the site. It's, you know, they do a lot of great work, but I just think that um, like a lot of other, like a lot of other people, they were getting kind of burned out on the Trump stuff and um I don't really feel like I have that luxury because that's, you know, I think it's a big part of what's going on in our politics these days. And I think I have some talent at kind of explaining and decoding it. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just decided, you know, so for all of those different reasons, I decided to go to go solo. So, yeah, I mean, it's a brand new thing. It just launched on Monday Um, in some ways these past 48 hours because I've been so busy. I've kind of felt like a couple of weeks, but um, I'm looking forward to it, you know, and and um, I'm sure it'll it'll evolve as I go. But I'm thinking of uh, my newsletter, which I'm calling Public Notice, right, as an extension of the sorts of coverage I've been doing for years. Uh, So as I mentioned, you know, I plan to keep covering right wing media, uh, Republican politics, kind of American politics more broadly. And so, yeah, I mean, if people are curious, if you haven't already subscribed, um, I have the the link. Uh, right at the top of my Twitter and my bio. So you can click on that. It's aaronrupar.substack.com. Yeah, I'll put it in the description too under this episode. So if you go to bobseska.com, you click on this episode, you'll be able to find the link for uh, for your Substack there. It sounds great. And, you know, you mentioned about Vox kind of backing away from 
uh, Trump material. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I'm not writing for Salon as often as I was, because I, I think they wanted to take a break from all the Donald Trump coverage, which on one hand I go, eh, that's fine. I mean, there was lots of Trump for four or five years there, but I go, shit, it, he hasn't gone away yet, guys. He's not, he hasn't left the room. He's still here. <laughs> so I say, okay, well, we got to come back to it at some point. I hope, I hope they come back to, uh, uh, ringing the alarm again. You know what I mean? I totally hear you. And and it's it's a tough thing because I think there is, you know, and I'm very sensitive to this as well, where I don't want to promote Trump in the sense of, you know, and I see some oh, reporters yeah. doing this where it's like every little statement that he releases calling Liz Cheney a rhino or something, <laughs> you know, it's reporters kind of hop on that and they need to tweet it. Yeah. And at a certain point, it's like, you know, there's really no news value to this. Like we kind of mm. know what he thinks about Liz Cheney. We know what he thinks about, you know, uh, the Washington Post, you know, the the fake New York Times or whatever we, you know, but at, on the other hand, I mean, this is a guy who still commands, you know, it's like, depending what poll you're looking at, 78 to 80% of Republican primary voters still support him. And oh, so, yeah. and, you know, just the, the sense in which his movement stands for, you know, barely concealed authoritarianism and kind of a turn against free and fair elections, I think is really terrifying and, and, you know, it's terrifying in a sense, but also really important. And so we shouldn't kind of turn away from that or pretend it's not happening. And I, I do think that, um, you know, there are people who have good critiques of the media for doing too much to kind of promote Trump, to mm -hmm. give him airtime when maybe he is saying things that aren't newsworthy and are better off being ignored. But right. I don't think that, um, you know, there's kind of a fine line between that and sort of just completely ignoring him, which I think um, is dangerous because it's very likely that he's going to be the Republican candidate in 2024. Mm -hmm. And if he is, I think that election will end up being kind of a referendum on, you know, what the, what our elections look like going forward. And so, um, you know, I certainly, once we got through the 2020 election, um, I took kind of a step back for a number of months, you know, I wrote almost nothing on Vox.com about Trump, but, yeah. um, and it's not like they're not covering Trump, but I just think, you know, kind of the, the sort of coverage that I do sort of the day-to-day -day kind of iterative coverage of like oh, yeah. trends on trending stories on Fox news and, you know, how they're kind of based on BS or explaining conspiracy theories, that sort of thing. I just think that um, it was my sense that Vox is kind of moving away from that. Mm -hmm. um, and those are things that I continue to be interested in and want to cover. And so um, that's where I just kind of think that, um, you know, all the experience that I have as a journalist will really lend itself well to making this newsletter a success and still well-rounded, even though, I'm not situated in a larger publication. Um, I still do have an editor that I'm working with who edits all of my stuff. So oh, I'm great, not kind of great. that, yeah. I'm not that Substack cliche of like, you know, the Glenn Greenwald who's just kind of riffing with no, <laughs> nobody editing it. Um, yeah. That's not, that's not what's going on with me, but um, yeah, I mean, so I'm excited and, you know, it still was kind of, it's still kind of sinking in, you know, it's only my third day really on this job, but um, just the reality of being self-employed um, is really exciting. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. a really cool thing and that freedom to kind of be wherever I want and, and write whatever I want. Um, you know, I'm really kind of looking forward to seeing where that goes, because uh, I still kind of have the the mindset as I'm writing these initial blog posts for public notice, you know, very journalistically and kind of in a the, the sort of style I'm used to writing on Vox. But I think, you know, as I get further away from that, um, you know, I kind of look forward to, to doing kind of more experimental stuff or, you know, writing with a little more voice. 
And so, yeah, I mean, I hope people will, will come along for the ride and sort of, you know, see what I'm up to. And, you know, I'm sure I, even myself, I'll be surprised with what I'm up to in six months. So, yeah. And, um, and you know what? Yeah. Congratulations with the Brian Kloss interview. Uh, I read through that oh, today. You. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, uh, Brian mentioned that uh, the insurrection didn't quite break the spell. This is one of the things that jumped off the page for me uh, from your newsletter. He said that it didn't quite end the MAGA movement, which was, I think, the hope of many of us as we were watching this. Like, oh, heads are going to roll and this is going to be it. But it actually didn't go away. Is there anything that could make it go away? I mean, did Brian reveal anything in that interview that made you believe that uh, perhaps there is something that will rebottle this uh, move toward whatever you want to call it, Trumpism, the MAGA agenda, et cetera? Yeah, that was really, yeah, that was one of the, the things that really jumped out to me, too, is that he basically, you know, Brian Kloss basically said that January 6th um, to him was dispiriting in the sense that if if that wasn't enough to kind of break the spell of Trumpism and cause, you know, whether you're talking about Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, you know, th- these Republican leaders from once and for all denouncing Trump, then what would kind of thing, Yeah, which I think is a pretty insightful point. And that was kind of his basic reason for being pessimistic as he laid out in the Q&A about the prospects for U.S. democracy, both in the the short and medium terms, um, because as he kind of made the case to me, he views American democracy as being pretty jeopardized until there is some sort of major democracy reforms passed on a federal level, which of course at this point would take reforming the filibuster and there doesn't seem to be the, the to be the political appetite to do that right now. Yeah. And so I hadn't really totally thought of January 6th that way, but, but it makes a lot of sense. And of course we can all kind of think back on, you know, if you remember Lindsey Graham on the Senate floor, um, you know, he seemed a little bit, um, I don't know if he was a little bit tipsy that night, but you know, he was kind of <laughs> breathless on the Senate floor saying, uh, you know, enough is enough. This, you know, it, it's time to move on. And, you know, people yeah. kind of interpreted his comments as like him denouncing Trump and then, two weeks later, he was kissing up to him again on the golf course sort of thing, or, you know, even Kevin McCarthy in his speech denouncing Trump's role in January 6th before kind of cozying back up to him. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think basically what happened was these Republicans um, probably were, you know, legitimately sort of dismayed at the events of January 6th and probably their instinct was to denounce Trump, but I think they were disabused of that inclination pretty quickly when it became clear that Republican base voters, base voters were sticking with Trump and that, mm-hmm. Um, his standing, you know, as the most popular Republican nationally, you know, hadn't been undermined by anything that had happened that day. And, you know, I think it gets back to that dynamic, which Brian also talked about in our our interview of elite Republicans basically being scared of their voters, Mm -hmm. you know, and basically being scared that if, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, you know, went after them on Twitter, um, that the whole, you know, that, that Marjorie Taylor Greene has more gravitas than they do and more, you know, more sway within kind of the, the base Republican, uh, the base Republican voters than they do. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of the behavior of Republicans over this Trump era can be traced back to kind of a fundamental fear of their own voters. And I think, you know, that dynamic that we saw after January 6th and that Brian talked about as well is, is part of that trend. All right, we got to take one last break. Back with more Aaron Rupar right after this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
So Laura Ingram thinks you can mainline pot. How exactly does that work? I noticed that video yeah, you posted yeah, on your yeah, Twitter. Was, yeah. uh, she said that. Yeah, she said that on her show last night. Uh, <laughs> Eason actually, you know, my friend Eason, who watches even more Fox than I do, um, yeah. had that that clip up before I did. And then I, you know, I, I posted just kind of the, the brief snippet of her saying that. But um, yeah, I don't really know how that would work. Um, I have never mainlined pot. I don't know if that's, uh, you know, something that, uh, you know, her generation, you know, if you were 20 and, uh, you know, around like 1985, if that's yeah. what uh, the kids were doing back then or something. But uh, no, that was that was never that was never a thing for me. But, you know, I, I'm guessing that Laura Ingram, Laura Ingram doesn't have that many encounters these yeah. days with uh, with marijuana. I, I could be wrong, but um <laughs> You know, you know, if you're out there talking about mainlining it, I, I think that kind of indicates that you probably are, you know, don't have a lot of familiarity with it. You mentioned Asen. Are you guys, do you guys know each other? We know each other on Twitter. I mean, we're DMing all the time just oh, okay. because, um, you know, he's, well, he's cause, yeah, cause I think he was, and, he's doing the kind of the same thing that uh, you started up with the videos and everything like that. And yeah, he sort of made a name for himself. His, doing. I mean, he really has kind of like a, his operation, the way that he does that is very kind of bootstrapped. I mean, he, yeah. you know, I have all of this like fancy software where I can search things and find clips and stuff. Wow. And, and that was actually one of the things with going solo. That was kind of a big stress point was just trying to raise funds to still have like a snap stream and, you know, have access to these video services where I can get clips. But ASIN basically, to my knowledge, um, just does it all with screen recorders. Holy and so shit. the types of screen recorders that we all have on our iPhones that, you know, I think he literally is watching a lot of these shows and just recording them and then, you know, clipping them and posting them. And, and, and he's genius with that technique. I mean, he, you know, he gets stuff up a lot of the times before I even do if we're watching the same event yeah. live. So um, I'm very impressed with that because it takes a level of dedication that I frankly do not have where <laughs> um, like I will watch like, you know, I'll have fox news on kind of in the background like last night i was watching the baseball game but i had my computer open with fox playing and some other tv stations just to keep an eye on it and then you know i saw donald trump jr was on with uh, i believe it was hannity and so then i kind of you know tuned in for that watched the five minute interview but i'm certainly not sitting there watching all of tucker's monologue every night <laughs> but asen i think actually does that i mean i think he's yeah. watching all of that stuff and you know he's you know so it's really the, the amount of attention he pays i mean you asked me earlier if i'm like scarred from watching all this Trump or traumatized. I mean, you should, you should ask him that. Cause I think, you know, if anybody should be scarred from Fox, it's him because yeah. he's watching it all the time. And I just kind of, a lot of the times, I'll, a lot of times what will happen with me is I will see someone tweets kind of like, Oh man, you have to see Donald Trump jr. On, you know, this interview that just happened on, on Laura Ingram show or something. Yeah. And then I'm able to go back and watch that after it happened. But Asen, I don't think has that capability. So he's, he's literally watching it in real time all the time. So, you know, th there is a difference there, and, and I definitely tip my cap to him. I've never met him, but we DM all the time, and he seems like a very nice guy. Oh, that's incredible. And you know what? It's not an easy thing to do, to post a video on Twitter or anywhere else. It's kind of a chore. It's not the same as just tweeting text or putting a picture up. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of time spent uploading and rendering and all that crap. So make sure to support Aaron Rupar's uh, Substack. It is called Public Notice, aaronrupar.substack.com. Uh, don't forget to check out Aaron's chilling interview with with uh, Washington Post columnist Brian Kloss and a whole lot more. Meantime, Aaron's got one of the great uh, must-follow Twitter feeds, of course, at ATRUPAR, a link also in the description. Thank you so much for coming back to the show, my friend, and all the best to your amazing, amazing family. Yeah, thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me on. All the best to you as well, and let's do it again before too long. Thanks so much. We'll see you on Twitter. Yep, bye-bye. Bye-bye.